This episode is made possible by my book, Break the Wheel. In my early career as a marketer, I was surrounded by all these techniques and tropes that just rubbed me the wrong way, and I couldn't figure out why. And then I'd look across the industry and see so much commodity junk being shipped. And the thing is, nobody aspires to be average or forgettable. So why was that seemingly the approach to our creative work? Fast forward two and a half years and my book, Break the Wheel, was born. It was all thanks to the storytelling on this show and on stages where I spoke publicly all across the world. The subtitle of the book says it all. Question best practices, hone your intuition, and do your best work. It's a journey through story and science across the business world and beyond. I think you'll be inspired, but more importantly, empowered to make a switch in your work from acting like an expert to acting like an investigator. Remember, finding best practices is not the goal. Finding the best approach for you is. So how do we do that? That is why I wrote Break the Wheel. Search for Break the Wheel book on Amazon or visit jayakunzo.com slash books to learn more. Every dollar helps me continue to make this show for you. Thank you so, so much for your support. Hey, just a heads up, uh, this episode contains a little bit of some spicy language. So if you're listening around some kids, maybe don't. All right, here we go. You don't have to hustle to grind grit. Hustle, your work ethic, your drive. Lift the weights, sprint the hill, work on the project, get out of bed. We're all born weak, but how we die is a result of how we live our life. Waiting to figure it out, waiting for the right time. That is the death of your dreams. It's the death of your happiness. It's the death of everything that you've ever wanted to see come true in your life. This voice in your head that wants you to do nothing. This is what a professional does. A professional goes to work. I get it done, even if I'm just going through the motions. I go through the motions. So every day, at the same time, you sit down in front of your keyboard and you start working. This internet thing created way more opportunity for all of us. I want you to embrace making money. I want you to embrace making a difference and not be timid about it and hold back on your heels, but like come for it and own it. When you don't have someone telling you you have to do something and you're that person, you've got to follow through. I really want you to get that car, that plane, that house. Opportunity money and opportunity hustle. We all have the same 24 hours in a day. Hustle to grind. Hustle. Hustle. Rise and grind. You've got for it. Hustle. This voice in your head. This voice in your head. Rise and grind. And so while everybody's drinking some goddamn eggnog, I continue the hustle. exhausting, it's overkill, and I'm burnt out. It's unthinkable. Stories of creators who break from conventional thinking to make work that matters. I'm Jay Akunzo. We live in this era overflowing with advice. The dark side of the information age is advice overload. Endless inspiration, pithy statements, lengthy essays, you name it, all help us learn how to hustle and grind and win and succeed. Some of it can be helpful. Some of it can be damaging. 
all of it might be best if taken in small doses. After all, if your favorite guru is like Red Bull to your brain, you might want to stop to consider the consequences if that's all you're ingesting. Still, you and I, I think we're driven. We want to create work that matters. We don't just want to make some stuff. We don't just want to sell some crap. We want to leave our legacies. Yes, we want to grow our businesses. We want to improve our reach. But mostly, we want to resonate to do that. We want to make things that make a difference. To do it, I think, requires that we consider first our body of work. And as we're exploring on this show, a body of work is just made up of lots of little attempts and pieces and projects, reps in the creative process. That's what creativity is. Repetition plus reinvention over time. Create, create again, create again and again and again, improving all the while. How do we do all that stuff without burning out? I don't know if you ever close the gap. I think the game is being in that space and getting comfortable with chasing. That's writer Margot Aaron. She's talking about the idea that we've explored here before called the gap, first made famous by Ira Glass. The gap between the work you can imagine creating and work you can actually create. That is the making. The, your taste changes. And as you do more reps, as you start to understand what goes into being prolific, what goes into making a sentence that is constructed that matches what you thought in your head, you know, that comes out in paper the way that you intended and is received in the way that you intended, um, your taste changes, your appreciation changes. And so you live in that space between the two. And I think the place you really want to get to, I certainly do, is when you're proud of your work. But that also shifts. That's why I think the gap is always there because there are pieces that I'll revisit and I'll go, oh, <laughs> I was so proud of it when it came out. And I look at it and I'm like, oh, baby, you are a youngin. <laughs> you are a child. That is snarky ass shit. That was a lazy, lazy argument. <laughs> um, and, and I'll see all the places where it could have been better, but I don't judge the piece. That was just a rep. It was what I needed to write and get out and get feedback on from the market um, in order to get to the next step. Margot started her career as a psychological researcher, working for a mental health clinic. It was there she discovered a problem. It's really hard to get people to do things in their own best interest. So she wondered, how do you get people to care? She took this question to Columbia for grad school, but they weren't much better at it because they had the same problem. They didn't know how to get people to care. In fact, they made it purposely difficult to get awesome, life-changing information by locking it inside of books that were hard to read, on shelves that were hard to explore, discussed in classes that were hard to not sleep through. If Margot is all about anything in particular, it's about her never-ending quest to turn information no one cares about but probably should know into something people truly, genuinely, even passionately care about. And that's when she accidentally wound up a marketer. I found myself in marketing and had, I was a strategist and had a agency job. And I looked around at me and I was like, we are not really doing marketing. Like I, and there was a dishonesty about it, not in deception in the way that people talk about with persuasion, a, a dishonesty in that we're saying we're marketers, but really we attend meetings and please clients. And so there was something about this life that just really didn't sit well with me. And I felt like I wanted to do more. And 
I wanted still to get my voice out. Like that was something that was important to me while also supporting myself. So this idea of lifestyle entrepreneurship was really seductive. And so um, I made the leap and went out on my own, built a company I hated. <laughs> what was the company you hated? Uh, a consulting firm. So it was it was client services, which is sort of where everyone starts. I, went, I, I sort of danced between freelancer and consultant and employer. So I was just trying to understand, like, do I want to have employees? Is it better just to pay for time and money? And I just realized the, the, there were misaligned incentives when you when people pay you for your time. Mm. So like the, the less efficient I was, the more I got paid. And so that drove me crazy. And so that's sort of where I went into project work. Margot launched her website called That Seems Important. There, she began to write. But here, so so the rep started there, and I will tell you, it was a it was a slow start because I was very reactive to audience reception. So if I wrote something and it wasn't well received, um, whether that was in reality or in my head, right? Like this wasn't necessarily on par with the truth of the world. Like if one person said something on the side to me, I'd be crushed. Like I really didn't have the muscle to be a public figure yet. And so I would disappear. Like I wouldn't write for three or four months. And so I was very inconsistent until truly the Alt-MBA changed my life. The Alt-MBA is a workshop run by the organization Akimbo, founded by Seth Godin. Says Margot, it's not what you think of when you think of online courses. Whereas most online education is lecture-based with assigned homework, the Alt-MBA is constructed around a discussion forum online, and the lessons that you receive aren't actually the lessons you think you're getting. Instead, there's these meta-lessons hidden inside of whatever was overtly assigned to you in order to teach people what some might call soft skills, which are becoming way more important today. Think of it this way. Let's take a subject from school like trigonometry. Oh, look at that. Another day I didn't use trigonometry. Sure, some folks will actually use trig in their careers, but mainly defenders of that subject in schools will tell you, oh, it helps you think a certain way. Well, if that's the byproduct that we actually want, then what else could we design into our curriculum to help students think that way? Instead of it being a happy accident, what if it was proactively designed with greater intention to get that meta lesson? Is trig really the best class to take to think that way? Here's how Margot explains this concept. You are given way too much information and incomplete, insufficient amount of time to do your project. And so like what you learn is not actually what the project wanted, you know, maybe like accounting or something like that. What you learn is how to make decisions fast with incomplete information. You learn to trust yourself. You learn to put yourself out there. You learn to publish in spite of the restraints. And then you begin to see that all constraints are ones that you built yourself because the actual container, no one's getting in trouble if you don't finish something. So that leaves me, dear listener, with a question I simply can't shake. We're exploring this idea of getting to the next rep, and we're learning how lots of prolific, thriving creators do so to make work that resonates more deeply. But of course, we're not simply trying to ship, 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 work, 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 rep after rep, hustle harder all the time to burn ourselves out. I mean, that's not the goal. I think of this on a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, you have people who tell themselves they need a break and thus hide from doing the work. Really, they're just waiting around for the muse to strike or the perfect conditions to suddenly manifest in their day. And so they might need a little Red Bull to the brain. They might need to learn to hustle, to grind, to show up, 
to put in the reps day after day because it is truly about the reps, not the perfect condition or a lightning strike idea. But on the other end of the spectrum, you have the people who end up working too much, pressing too hard and burning out. Whether those people embrace this hustle harder culture or they're like me and they feel so called to create that it ends up overtaking them. Neither of these two extremes does anyone any good. Not the creator, not the audience they want to serve, nobody. And so the question, I guess, is a two-parter for you and for me, and also for Margot. Where does recovery fit in our building of our bodies of work? And how do we know whether the friction we feel or the slog we're experiencing is because we just need more reps or we need a break? I think it's a matter of you've got to cultivate that self-awareness and you have to put yourself in the arena enough times to know the difference. And so for me, I have a propensity to push through in times when I should actually stop. Um, and so that that's my that's where I end up. I, I think a lot of people on my email list and a lot of people I talk to have a propensity to hide forever. And I've definitely been in that space early in my career. Um, the difference is when you start to experience physical symptoms, I would say, that are detrimental to your health. If there's something inside of you that you know needs to come out and you're not letting it out, it's going it metastasizes. That is not innocuous. And so that's going to haunt you. And if that is happening, then that's an indication that you need to put yourself out there, that, that it's fear and we need to face that resistance. But on the other side of the spectrum, if you're constantly pushing yourself to do more, 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 and you're also burning yourself out, that's unhealthy. See, see, that's me. That's me to a T. Like the fear of not is greater than the fear of shipping and something not working or putting my neck out, which I know, you know, the latter is something that does hold plenty of people back. But I'm more afraid of not. Uh, I'm more afraid of wasting my limited time on earth. And, and, and you know, I think maybe that sounds more admirable, more noble, uh, you know, certainly our Western work culture seems to applaud that a little bit more, I think. But really, in my experience, it can be just as damaging as the other end of the spectrum, which is the fear of shipping, because I need to do the work so badly that I probably don't take the time to recover as much as I need to. Have you experienced burnout as it relates to a project that you felt was too hard to change, where you feel almost chained to doing it consistently, even though you know it's the source of the problem? Oh my God, yes. Especially when there's money involved. I had a really tough time saying no to projects that were very obviously bad for me, very obviously not aligned. Like when I was in consulting, here's, here's how it would go down. Um, I, when I was, and this was after I, like a lot of my marketing criticisms were, were published and open and I was in a lot of outlets and I'd sit down with the client and they'd tell me their plan for, they'd say maybe, I don't know, a couple million dollar budget. And they're like, this is what we think we're going to do. And I would go, okay, here's why that's not going to work. Here's what I recommend you do instead. But if you need recommendations, I can set you up with other people. And they would turn around and be like, you know what? We like you. You tell the truth. So we're going to hire you at the rate that you wanted to do the thing we told you just told us wouldn't work. <laughs> and I would just sit there being like, ah! Um, and so it would create this ethical dilemma on one hand. And then sometimes there would be clients that were just 
difficult and there were red flags up front, but it was hard to say no because the project was seductive and I wanted, you know, I wanted to prove something to myself. I wanted to know that I was good at marketing. I wanted to know that I was a talented copywriter. I wanted to know that I could do, you know, a project of, of this size and stature. And um, for me, my Achilles heel is people pleasing. And that was very much rewarded in the business model that I had chosen. And so I did a really poor job of implementing boundaries with clients. Um, I got really good at saying yes and um, negotiating drama and always being pulled into it um, and and uh, de-escalating it, but still being a part <laughs> of it. So um, so it just it it I looked at that and I remember I, I remember this moment sitting with my sister and um, she was listening to me on some phone calls and she goes, you know, I thought you were in psychology and marketing and like do you just babysit people for a living? Like what is your job? And I was mortified. I was mortified because she was right. I was spending so much time in client acquisition, client management, and like just dealing with people behaving badly that I wasn't actually getting to do any of the things I wanted to do. And um, my sleep was suffering. My quality of work was suffering. Um, my bank account was doing okay, but I still felt that fear that if I lose this client, that I'm going to be broke, you know, and I'll never get clients again. And she's going to be awful. And I, I, it was a very unhealthy type of game for me. You've talked publicly about having what you call non-negotiables in order to recover well and do good work. What are your non-negotiables? For sure, sleep. That's a big one. And alone time. I need excessive amounts of alone time to think, to write, to work through ideas and to um, build in time into my reps. So one of the mistakes I made with my email list was uh, I had drank the Kool-Aid of like, publish often, publish all the time and just put your ideas out there and test them. And I would be putting things out and I'm like, you know what? I wasn't proud of that. And the feedback I got from the market wasn't helpful because it wasn't a good piece. And so I, I just got frustrated with the hamster wheel. And I was like, if I actually want to test an idea, I need the idea to be representative of something I'm proud of and of the idea it's representing. I, I don't want the like, because for me, my writing process is very verbose. Like I'll have maybe five or six paragraphs of just things that don't need to be there. And so uh, to get to my point. And so I just know this about my process now because I've done it enough times. So I need drafts. And I need space and time for those drafts. And I need to be able to come back with clear eyes and fresh eyes so I can look. Because with fresh eyes, I can go, garbage, garbage, this belongs in another piece, move that here. Okay, here's the point of your piece. And so um, those are some of my non-negotiables. To help build her career around these non-negotiables, Margot has had to look outside her primary industry niche of marketing, even venturing outside of just digital creators to learn from others. Tina Fey is not on Twitter. She's just not. <laughs> so how has that affected her career? You know, I look at the, the different models in which people have a career that is in the creative space where they're constantly working on projects, but they're not necessarily subject to the same laws that we think we have to be subjected right. by. Right. I think, you know, who comes to mind as a former guest on this show is uh, Tim Urban from the blog Wait But Why. Yes. So Tim publishes these really in-depth, super entertaining and educational essays with cartoons and metaphors and visual frameworks. And it's just, it's great. And he strives to do what he calls A plus work. And when I first saw Tim's work, I think I'd been a writer online for years and I had this like glass shattering sound when I witnessed his work. It was like an illusion that I'd been carrying with me had been shattered which was that I had to publish 
every week. And I had to tell the audience when to expect my work because Tim doesn't. And he's, he's fine. I mean, the more I looked, the more I found others like Tim too. So you can be fine. There's no one way, you know, if you break from that best practice, you, you can be fine. And, uh, and what I realized Margo is there's like two filters we need to get through to keep reaching the next rep and build our bodies of work. I think the first is just get there consistently. Like, are you able to publish or are you hiding? Are you waiting around for the perfect idea or moment or is perfectionism holding you back or is the myth of the overnight success or the story in your head that you have writer's block? Like, are you just not showing up consistently? And I think that is when putting yourself on a deadline really might matter. But if you're already capable of shipping, if that, that is not your problem, that is not your challenge or your fear, and you have been shipping like Tim Urban or like you, Margo, or you, you know, me, I'm not, I'm not, I like create a lot of stuff. Maybe now we can break from that. And so getting to the next rep is not just about getting there consistently, but also better. And so now recovery is even more important and non-negotiables are more important. And we can, we can start to question this gospel of speed and freneticism and all this stuff that, that is sort of incentivized by the feed-based world. Yes. Oh my God. Let's dig in here. Cause like something I've learned is busyness is also a form of hiding. And so where I thought that I was following that gospel, I was like, no, I am publishing. I am proud of how I'm showing up and I am doing it consistently. And like, this was, this is the hill I'm going to die on. I had someone come up to me who is multi <laughs> New York times bestselling author, like prevalent career older than us. And he sat me down and he was like, yeah, but you're not writing your book because you're so busy trying to meet all these deadlines that don't matter. And I was like, well, <laughs> how dare you see me so clearly? Um, and it was, it was really hard. It was really hard for him to just look at me. And I thought that I was delivering. I was like, I am on all the social platforms. I am doing, I am like, I am making Gary be so proud. And, and this guy who's more successful than me is being like, yeah, but you're not making yourself, like, you're not doing the things you actually want to do. Like how, if you are off of Instagram for two months because you're writing a book, are you really going to lose that much of your brand affinity? I don't think so. And the crazy thing is what, what helped me mitigate some of this and challenge those scripts is I talked to my readers and, and, um, I had conversations with a few of them and they were like, if you told us that you were going to ghost for X amount of weeks or months, because you're writing a book, we'd be so excited because we want to read your book. And I was like, what? I'm sorry. What? <laughs> like, it just blew my mind that the like one I was really proud of the relationship I had built with them but that 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 it really inverted what I thought was true which was the scarcity mentality I was coming from that right. if I don't show up every day that somehow I was letting people down that I was letting down my audience but really the people I was letting down was number one, my family, because I was so busy trying to figure out what I was going to post on social media. I was like ignoring my kid and, um, and like m my husband and also myself, right? Like I wanted to go deeper on things. I was actually really frustrated and I continue to be by fast format content. I think it's, it's great for some brands. Um, but as someone who I was, I was hungry to go deeper and more nuanced on ideas. And I didn't feel like that need was being met on the platforms that, that everyone said I had to be on. Taking breaks, slowing down, focusing, going deeper, and of course, recovery. 
it all feels like we're kind of halting the work. I deal with this constantly. I struggle to embrace recovery because my brain goes, you're not creating right now. What are you doing? You're going to die someday. Your clock is ticking. What the hell are you doing? Maybe you might think that other person, look at them. They're showing up. They keep going. Why don't I have a bigger audience? Why don't I have greater reach? Why am I not driving more revenue? So maybe it's a legacy thing. Maybe it's a results-driven thing. Or maybe you just feel compelled to post constantly on social media or be on every social platform or ship a weekly article or newsletter or episode or illustration because reasons. And we've kind of lost sight of what those are. And that could hold true, even though our problem is no longer simply shipping the work, it's shipping better work. Margot's the same way. She's gotten past the first filter. She's able to show up consistently. That is no longer her problem. So now she wants to show up better. She wants each rep to be about improvement. Yet unlike me and maybe you, she's been able to embrace recovery a lot more fully. And why? Because of the story she tells herself about recovery. Margot is able to work according to her non-negotiables and to actually embrace and benefit from taking breaks because of a very specific interpretation that she has of what recovery is actually for. But before we get there and hear more from Margot, first, we have to understand something. What is unfolding in our brains? And we have to learn about a concept called default mode. To help us, let's talk to freelance writer and frequent contributor to Unthinkable, Molly Donovan. She's brought us uh, some valuable research to help our journey today. Hey, Molly. Hey, Jay. Uh, so, Jay, do you remember any times in college, perhaps when you were staying up late writing a paper, maybe you'd procrastinate a little bit? Wait, 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 maybe. hold on. In- English literature major doing anything remotely relating to procrastination or staying up late writing? No. Oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have asked. (laughs) That's definitely not never happened to you, right? Fun fact. I read maybe 50% of the actual books I wrote about in college. Really? You read, and I know this about you, you read all but one. All but one. Oh gosh. Yeah. I feel so shamed. (laughs) Don't. I mean, maybe, maybe there's some shame on my part, but I mean, I, I, I still have some guilt about I couldn't get through all of the Brothers Karamazov. It's just too freaking long. But, you know, that's okay. Maybe someday. Yeah. So <laughs> fair, fair to say that I, I do remember staying up late. So you've been in this situation. Writing papers. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I have too. And, you know, it you have that moment at like 3 a.m. when things are feeling dire and you're convinced that you're never going to finish the assignment like ever. Yep. That has, that's happened to me a, a time or two. And when I'm in situations like that, I, usually the last thing I think to do is take a break. And then after, you know, I stress out and just do nothing because I'm just freaking out for a while, I inevitably do take a break. And usually that's when I get some kind of breakthrough. Has that happened to you too? Yes. And it's almost like we should take a break sooner the first moment we realize we need it i'm guessing what a wild idea but it it feels so novel at the time but yeah you're right and we should do that and that's supported by science uh in 2012 a scientist named mary helen imordino yang ran a study with her colleagues at usc and mit they used this fmri scanner which i don't 
what that is, but that's something they used to see what was happening in the brain when it was in what they called default mode. So default mode is the state your brain's in when you're not actively doing something. So when you're not actively writing a paper or doing work or puzzling out a problem, it's what your brain is doing when you're taking a break. So what the scientists found was that the brain isn't actually just chilling when it's in default mode. (laughs) It's actually super active, but just in a different way. And further research found that default mode is actually really, really important. We wouldn't be able to form lasting memories, make plans, or learn from the things that have happened to us if we never let our brains take a break. Okay, so just so I understand that. So when you are not focused proactively on solving a hard problem, like you said, puzzling something out, writing that paper or whatever you're creating, your brain isn't just coasting. There's a lot of important work that's going on up there. Uh, But perhaps you don't know it. It's like you're deciding like, hey, brain, do this thing now quite the same way maybe that you're doing that happens when you're writing. Exactly. It's like when you stop concentrating so hard on something and stop, I guess, thinking too hard, your brain just, you put it, it doesn't shut off. You're not asleep, but it's in this kind of different mode where you're, you're still, it's still active. There's a uh, mug that I saw, which are mug t-shirt, like one of those designs you can get in any kind of merch. When I was shopping for Christmas gifts for creative friends of mine, it said, hold on while I overthink this. Oh. And I, I almost bought it for myself. <laughs> that is something that I would have worn all the time in college yep. and for most of my life thereafter. Um. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the brain. So the brain. So if we want our brains to be as active and high performing as possible, which I'm, you know, spoiler alert, we do, we can't force them to be active all the time because it's exhausting (laughs) and it won't work. It's not helpful. Uh, We need to find ways they can enter default mode. We need to let them take a break. We need to let them actually recover. And you know who gets this really well already, Jay, this concept of recovery? Uh, Not me. (laughs) Not you necessarily, Um, but athletes. And that's not to say that you're not an athlete. Uh, I know you're a dad, but you can still be an athlete. Um, (laughs) But athletes do get this. You know, when they're training, they don't do the same thing a million times in a row without taking a break. They do a bunch of reps and sets and then they rest. And it's not something they do because they're being lazy. They do it because it really works. Um, You know, when athletes are getting started, they need to put in more reps and sets more often. But then at a certain point, they need to make changes to their routine in order to continue improving. And they actually need more time to recover and recover well. Ah, interesting. This actually connects back to something we learned when speaking to Margot Aaron and also talking about another writer, Tim Urban. This idea that at first, as the famous quote by Ira Glass says, do a lot of work. If you want to close the gap between what you can imagine creating and what you can actually create, put yourself on a deadline, ship a lot of stuff. But then you reach a second problem, a second filter you have to get through, which is not just consistently showing up and doing a lot of things, but also improvement, you know, taking bigger swings, reflecting on your craft and on your your body of work to then improve, um, creating more meaningful stuff, going deeper, whatever. The challenge changes. You're no longer solely focused on just shipping, learning the basics and and the craft. You're now aiming for mastery of craft, for originality, for depth of ideas, and for impact out in the world. So it's all about how do I resonate more deeply? And so you might at least consider removing the deadline constraint 
stepping off the hamster wheel a little bit more often and installing more recovery into your work because the challenge has changed. Um, You're now in the habit of shipping. That's not the problem. Now you want to reach the next rep better. And so you have to prioritize recovery more fully than before. And, you know, I think it's always important to recover, but it becomes more important and you need more of it once you're focused on that second challenge or filter, you know, just like an athlete as they progress. Yeah. And it's interesting because according to a Simply Shredded article I read recently, favorite which, blog, favorite site. <laughs> to, honestly, it's a sentence I never thought I would say, but advanced bodybuilders should not train a body part more than twice a week if they want to optimize their strength gains. And that's because apparently their nervous systems have adapted and strength gains come from adaptations in the muscle fibers themselves. So once they get to a certain level, athletes need more recovery time if they want to get stronger. So my question for you and for us is what happens when the muscle you're exercising is your creative muscle? So when you get started on a creative project, do you need to do more reps and sets more often? And once you're in a good groove, do you need more recovery time in order to maximize the strength of that creativity? And how do you take an active break where your brain is still being active and not just kind of zoning out on Netflix? How do you recover without losing time? Yeah, because so much of this exploration, calling it the the next rep, it can be dangerous. And even the first foray into this, the episode titled Experts Versus Explorers, I talked to author and entrepreneur Shane Snow, and he talked about, you know, I don't think it made the final cut of the episode, but I remember him asking, he was really excited about this exploration when I told him what we were doing. And he was like, I wonder though, how do you persist properly instead of just persisting like recklessly? And he didn't just mean in the wrong direction. He's like, you might be onto something and it might be a productive thing for your business, for your career, for your audience to pursue that project, but just doing it more like the, the hustle culture, the, the bad version of that, right? Like they talk about like the, you know, just show up and do the work and just ship it and all these, these pithy things that we hear, which kind of reward or incentivize or push you to just do it more and harder. Right. Uh, Shane was kind of wondering when is it inappropriate to do that? And so I talk a lot about the next rep is something we need to get to consistently, faster, and better. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes those are in conflict. Like perhaps sometimes you don't need to get there faster. I'm an example, I think. I need to start focusing either at this stage of my career or the way I like to work. I think I need to start getting better at arriving to the next rep improved instead of arriving to the next rep immediately. Because that's my want. That's my habit. And it's actually rather damaging because I'm stuffing myself too full of work instead of trying to make that work more elevated, more elegant, uh, deeper, different. I wonder too, when it comes to recovery, in order to optimize the benefit of the recovery and to get kind of those breakthrough moments, do you need to actively stop thinking about what you were thinking about? So what I mean is, (laughs) can you kind of trick yourself into taking an active kind of recovery or do, do those breakthroughs only happen when you've organically stopped thinking about the problem you're trying to solve? So, you know, you're working on something for hours at your desk, you go for a 20 minute walk, you're for the first time, you're not thinking about what you had been thinking about for hours because you have to walk your dog and it's just, you've allowed your brain to reset. And then all of a sudden, 
you know, you have a eureka moment and, and something, something clicks in your head. Will that not happen if you're kind of aware that you're like, okay, I'm going to go on this walk and I'm ready to have my eureka moment. Hmm. Does that make sense? My yeah. question? <laughs> no, I think so. So your mileage may vary, but for me, I, I am incapable of being in a gap moment in my life and not thinking about work. It inevitably comes up. So what I can't do is just go and sit on a park bench. Right. Um, what I could do is go sit on a park bench and try to watch something inf- unfolding in the park in front of me. Because same with walking or going for a run or working out or making coffee and like really trying to focus on the grinds and the way it smells and, you know, just just basic mindfulness things. You know, there's an exercise called five, four, three, two, one that I really enjoy. And I don't do it nearly enough, which is just five things you see and you focus on it and you, you know, okay, I'm see, I'm looking at my webcam. I'm noticing that it's black and it's shiny and it's got two blue lights on either side of it, et cetera. It's got this logo. The logo looks like this. And then you move on to uh, the other thing. So it's five things you see, four things you hear, um, three things you smell, two things you feel, one thing you taste. You can mix up the senses. And so if you're having trouble, maybe just try doing that. And by the end of it, you start out going, this is stupid. (laughs) And at the end of it, if you really commit to it, you're in the moment. And I think you feel more in control of yourself and your thinking and your emotions. And so I, I get there quickly without having to consciously do that exercise by just having some rote task that I have to do or having some light but not urgent stimuli in front of me, like watching, I don't know, a dog run around the park, mm-hmm. for example. So I think to answer your question, I can't actually shut off those work thoughts. If I go for a walk, that's what I'm thinking about. So what I need to do is have something else that's not stressful that I can focus on instead and just kind of get lost in it. And, you know, it's it's an imperfect science because I think it's more interwoven than it is like one thread ends and the other begins. But it, it still seems to help. It still seems to be effective. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I'm just trying to think if there's, you know, like, can you get to a point where you're actually going where your your walks because you're expecting them to be kind of an, an extension of work? will they not be helpful anymore? I think it's like drinking water. If you're thirsty and you drink a glass of water, great start. But guess what happens after that? You need to keep drinking water. It's not enough (laughs) to be like, I drank water this week already on Monday. I'm done. Um, That's not a panacea. It's the habit. It's the consistency. Right. That's why we're talking about the next rep, because it's that atomic unit or micro motion that adds up to a thriving body of work. So it might unfold in two hours today. But what you're going for is 20 years of this or more. Right. So I think it's the same with recovery. It's actually not the eureka moment happens because you took a break and went for a walk. It's that slowly over time, you chip away at hard problems or you feel better, you know, bit by bit moment by moment, it all adds up together. But I don't think any one break matters all that much. Just like one rep doesn't matter all that much, but it's the collective that matters. Doing research for this episode, I found a number of blogs um, from writers and from artists who were talking about how they were really reticent to take breaks from their work because they had developed a habit and a practice of either writing every day or creating new art every day. And then 
they stopped for whatever reason for some time, uh, some period of time, you know, weeks or months. And then they were worried about what, about the impact that would have on their work. But then they were happy to find that when they kind of got back to the work, they actually felt that their work had improved and it was stronger once they'd had this sustained break. So that, that I thought was interesting too, because I think we are really promoting developing a practice and putting in the reps and, and being frequent and consistent with your work. But at what point does it make sense to step back and say, okay, I'm going to shut my brain off and not think about this project or this skill that I have in general for a little bit of, for a little while. I don't know. And that's part of the reason I want to do this exploration. My take on that is we can't decide this stuff up front we can only decide looking back at ourselves. Like I think we, uh, moments of reflection matter. Try stuff. If it didn't work out, it's okay. Try something else. So, you know, for me, what I realize is every time I stopped writing my newsletter over the last, say, 10 years, because I've had different permutations of basically the same newsletter. But I, I know every time I write a newsletter, I just feel better <laughs> about my work. Even though it feels like, Maybe this newsletter isn't directly contributing to the sales of my course or my books or client shows that I work on. But just like with Unthinkable, I'm like, I- I'm going to keep them indirect because as soon as it becomes direct, as soon as I need results through these things, it's no longer a practice. It's the game. Yeah. And there's a blurrier line in our work than in an athlete's, I realize, but I need to measure it for what it's for, which is for, for me feeling better. That took a lot, that took years of me realizing it. So now I know I always need a weekly writing practice. That's only retroactively that I can understand that. So Jay, where do you hope this episode leaves us? I I think a lot about just reminding ourselves of important things can actually go a long way to changing our behavior. You know, if you think about the most inspirational keynotes or books or whatever, sometimes they're pointing out obvious things that we've just lost. It's just buried under the daily grind. You know, there's a lot of clutter and cobwebs going on in our lives. And the clutter comes from maybe active frenetic pace of building and working in a modern, you know, capitalistic society. And the cobwebs come from all the things we've picked up along the way and just sort of like parked in a, in a place. And sometimes we just need, need a good spring cleaning. So it's appropriate because we're talking about recovery. But that's the analogy I went to, because I think sometimes that's what we need in, in, week to week in our creative projects. So where, where I hope this episode leaves us is if we're reminded of the importance of recovery and can find a few ways to start figuring out how ours looks and elevate its importance in our mind so that it's on par with when your screen is in front of you and you're typing, I think that's a win for us. This idea of recovery can feel like a clean break from the work, which can be difficult when you feel called to create. Worse, that calling can prevent you from taking a break and the cycle persists until you burn out. Margot Aaron has the outlook and attitude towards her work where this absolutely could happen to her. You and I are similar. My propensity is to get the A, to burn out, to, I was like, I will meet all the deadlines, I will win all the awards, I will do all the things. And that's when she enrolled in the Alt-MBA, the flagship workshop from Akimbo created by Seth Godin. 
because of the way Altembia is structured, it's it's not actually possible because there's no A's and you can't win. And so you end up feeding this hamster wheel, making yourself crazy. And so what I, what really a breaking point for me was, was there was one project where the what I submitted was why I couldn't do the project. And when I did that, I got flooded, flooded with comments and feedback and help and like just everyone saying, I felt this too, this was my experience, here's what I learned, here's what I didn't. And it turned out that was the point of the project. It was to get so overwhelmed that I finally stepped into my own power. It can be like, I'm not doing this anymore. Here's why this doesn't make sense. Here are all the things wrong with it. Who's with me? Um, and and you know, putting a stake in the ground and 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 not standing for something or questioning the container that we were in. We may not realize it, but we all operate in a container in our work. Mostly, we didn't choose it. Slowly and sometimes not so slowly. It was built around us, or we were dropped into it. Inside our modern container of work, I really want you to get that car, that plane, that opportunity is a frenetic, twitchy, million channel, 24 7, always on culture, which dominates. And we spend so much damn time trying to make that work. But maybe what we need is a new container. Or, God, at least a moment to step outside the container and take a freaking breath. Because this container, or at least the culture that permeates it, is not conducive to doing our best work. That's easier said than done. I get it. And that's why the way Margot frames recovery, the story she tells herself about the very notion of it, is so powerful for all of us. It protects the work. Like the work is better. These aren't just boundaries I'm putting in place so I don't have anxiety, right? Like those are boundaries I'm putting in place because I don't want to put bad stuff out. I don't want to be, I don't want to become that which I am criticizing because a lot of where the content starts to get bad or reactive is when you get sucked into that world of like publish or perish. Among other reasons to recover, and there are countless that have nothing to do with work, but among the reasons we should prioritize this stuff is it protects the work. And if you're like me, you're so driven to make what matters, to leave a legacy, to resonate more deeply, grow reach, grow revenue, or hell, just enjoy and get lost in the flow of creating your art. You're so driven by that stuff that recovery is nowhere on your radar, but we can make it a priority by telling ourselves the story of how it actually serves those existing priorities. We can make it a behavior because it's actually part of an existing behavior. Want to make meaningful things? Great. Recovery is not a break from that. It helps you do that. So in addition to my writing habits, I mean, I also very frequently fight with my husband and manage temper tantrums with my toddler and um, navigate friendships. And back, you know, before the pandemic was trying to be social. Um, but, um, But I think having an actual, you know, IRL life is a critical part of it. So I, I view um, like watching television when people are like, it's my decompression time. It's relaxing. I look away. I'm like, yes. And it's part of my job. Like if you, if you have trouble giving yourself a break and time off, tell, remind yourself that um, I call it, I call this rule. The gym is a meeting. So um, when people say like, I don't have enough time for this, this, and this, like if you don't do it, your work will be worse. I feel like there's a vocational call to some of my work. Like I feel such a pull towards the work that I don't know where to turn it off. And so I thought early in my career, 
oh, it, I'm bad at time management because I'm so I'm so burnt out. I got to learn how to focus my time because I just want to do more work. Mm-hmm. And what I heard some founders say is it's actually about energy management. Working for 12 hours on something that gives you energy, fine. Working for something that drains you of energy, you got problems. Um, so I have a, a rather heady question. Hit me. It's easy to map how you're spending your time. How do you actually figure out the energy management? What's draining you of energy or giving you energy? How in the world do you figure that out? How have you specifically tried? This is such a great question. I I think when you're a highly sensitive person, which I count myself among the HSPs, shout out anyone else out there who's highly sensitive, you you can't avoid this conversation. Like I cannot pretend to have energy when I don't and it shows up in my work. So, you know, an example I can give you is when I um, am asked to speak at a conference and I don't manage my energy and then I can't give the most during my talk, it's mortifying. Um, and so, so I've sort of similarly to you defaulted into learning these skills because if I didn't, I would burn out. Um, and so, so I started paying attention to how I felt um, and tuning in to, you know, when I got to the end of the day, why do I feel like garbage? And where I woke up and I felt good, what was different? And just taking mental notes until I reflected the patterns. Because something, <laughs> they don't teach us all this, but y'all, we're full of patterns. So it's a matter of just figuring out where they are and what they are. Um, and identifying the good ones and the the negative ones. So like meetings are one of the things that I identified. They were one of the things that was working. Like I'd have meetings, I'd make more sales, but they were also killing me. And my husband, I learned, this is how I learned about the energy thing. I'd watch him have a day full of back-to-back-to-back meetings and like be fine. And I was like, what? How are you making a full sentence? Because I'd have back-to-back-to-back meetings and then I'd have, you know, like an interview, like the one we're doing right now. And I couldn't perform. I just couldn't. Like I'd show up and I'd be embarrassed. And so that was an indicator to me that I have to have a boundary, right? For how much social interaction I could have in a day that I needed to protect my time and do more (laughs) maker shit, like hot girl shit, but maker shit um, (laughs) (laughs) during the day. So yeah. I don't believe in balance. I think that that is a cruel myth (laughs) that we use to attack ourselves with. I think that you are almost always disproportionate on one side or the other. And the the way I like to think about it more is your life is a marathon and you have sprints in between. And so the game is endurance. The game is lasting power. The game is showing up one more day. And so like the rest serves the work, but the work serves the rest. I like to have a glass of wine. I feel entitled to that glass of wine when I've worked a really hard day, not just because it exists and not because I'm forcing balance. It's messy, but there's a line between it's messy and it's hard and it's dysfunctional. And I think when when you start to hit the dysfunctional realm is when you're feeling, you know, psychological or physical symptoms that are troubling. And so we need to be spending our time in ways that you can have that diligent hard work, but you also know when to call it. So, in our quest to get to the next rep consistently and better, maybe we should think about our behavior in terms of both of those words. First, reach the next rep consistently. Then, reach the next rep better. Get in the habit of shipping and then in the habit of improving. Recovery is probably always important, 
but it becomes even more important and you need longer stretches of it, the closer to phase two you get. If your challenge is no longer simply showing up consistently to ship, now you need to recover even more. Just like an athlete that wants to lift more weights, you're going to require more recovery after than the person who's just going to try and show up at the gym five days in a row or go on a run a couple times a week. In phase one, early on, when it's about consistent reps, some of your improvement will happen simply because you're the type of person who wants to improve. So throwing yourself into this and showing up again and again, that might matter. But of course, it's also worth stepping back to recover, to figure out where you can actually start to bring more intentionality to the improvement process. Or maybe you're starting to do more ambitious projects, which in and of themselves require more recovery from the last one and more planning to bring into the world. It's not about simply shipping it all the time. That can lead to a lot of junk and we don't aspire to create junk. That can lead to a lot of burnout and certainly we want to avoid that. No, I think it's more nuanced. It's about learning to do a lot of work while also getting better. We aspire to make what matters, but we ensure we're taking steps towards that today. The business world is overflowing with advice for people who want to make what matters. And often it comes back to pushing you harder. But sometimes pushing more isn't the answer at all. Sometimes a Red Bull can help. But if all you're drinking is Red Bull, there might be consequences. But every so often, you just need a break from that freneticism. A chance to grab a different kind of drink. Whatever you're having, to kick back, take a sip, and relax. stuff. Thank you so much for listening. This episode was written, hosted, edited, everything by me, Jay Akunzo. So please, if you can, support this show. I'm doing a lot here. <laughs> Trying to make this show work by sharing it with a friend or letting me know what you think of it on social media. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Akunzo, or you can email me your thoughts, jay at unthinkablemedia.com. This episode is made possible in part thanks to anyone who purchases my book, Break the Wheel. It's a book about making better choices when faced with all kinds of variables in your situation that no guru or expert or best practice has taken into account. Finding best practices is not the goal. Finding the best approach for you is. How do we do that? Well, I'm certainly not going to give you another best practice, so let's go exploring. Let's tell some stories and look at the science. All of that is in my book, Break the Wheel. You can learn more at jayakunzo.com slash books or search Amazon for Break the Wheel book to buy a print, Kindle, or audio copy. Lastly, if you like my stories, I send a free newsletter. You can join thousands of content creators, entrepreneurs, and in-house marketers and makers who get these stories to feel centered every week as the world spins around them, to remember why they do the work, and to learn how to resonate more deeply with their craft. That's at jayakunzo.com slash newsletter. All these links are in your show notes. I'm back soon with a brand new episode of the show, but until then, keep making what matters. Bye. Thank you.